0: Everybody, this is Mike Van Meter, and welcome to the Recovery is Possible podcast. I want to thank you for joining me, and you can reach us at our Facebook site, which is also called Recovery is Possible, or our website, which is vanmeterwellnesssolutions.com. This podcast exists to educate the public about addiction, remove the stigma associated with addiction, and offer help and support to those suffering from addiction. And today we have a special guest, and our guest is Hillary Phelps. Yes, Hillary Phelps. And we met. Uh, last week is as we were trying to arrange to have Charlie Angle, who I interviewed yesterday on this podcast and had a great conversation. And as we were arranging to have Charlie come on the podcast, I realized that Hillary would be a great interview because she has a very, very powerful story of recovery and, um, She's going to be talking to us today about her recovery journey in the the old format, which is the way that it was, what happened in the way that it is now. And and I love hearing those stories. You know, with COVID, over the last couple of years, the number of in-person meetings has just not been existent. That's starting to change a little bit, thank goodness. But I always enjoyed, if that's... (laughs) I don't know if that's the way to to look at it. <laughs> Enjoyed stories, but I always got a lot out of it. I should say that. I learned, you know, from other people's stories because, you know, one of the things about recovery, and if you're new to recovery and you're listening to this, there's there's power in going to meetings in person, and I'm going to stress that going to per meeting in because I'm a big in-person meeting person, and listening to other people's stories, because you can identify in as opposed to identifying out, and you hear a part of you, and you hear a part of your own story and other people's stories, and you just can't replace that, and Hillary has a fantastic story, and the best part of it is she shared with me, and I'm just going to let this out of the bag, that just celebrated 15 years of continuous sobriety, and anybody that's been around the recovery world for a while knows that's a big deal. That is a big deal and and so I just want to start off with congratulations to that, Hillary, and welcome to the show.
1: <laughs> thank you and thank you. yeah, I had the, the pleasure of speaking with you on my 15th anniversary. Um, yeah, while, well, we were trying to find a date for Charlie to join you and uh, I feel like and I've shared with you a couple of times since we've chatted, you're just so warm and welcoming and it's just an easy conversation and you know, and I can talk about recovery seemingly forever because it's such a huge part of my life. And it's been a huge part of everyone that knows me their life because I've gotten so much better and heal, you know, in putting down the drink after 15 years is makes a big impact on people's lives.
0: You know, as we always say that life will get better. And if you're out there and you're listening right now and you're, you're struggling, well, a, and Hillary talked, Hillary and I talked about this offline that it's not by accident that you're listening to this podcast. I don't believe one thing in recovery I've learned and I'm sure you can share on this too, Hillary, is I don't believe in accidents anymore. If you're listening to this podcast right now, there's a reason why you're listening to it. And here's what you need to know. Life will get better if you stop drinking yes. or drugging because it can't not get better. And um, yes. maybe with that, yes. kind of kick it off and tell us how did what brought you here today. How did, how did we get yeah. from there to here?
1: <laughs> and that's what... How's know, that for I an open-ended
0: think, question? How's
1: that? <laughs> and I'm like... Oh, um, and I didn't think it would get better because when I was drinking, I didn't know how I was going to get through the weekend, you know, because that's what I did. That was my only tool in the toolbox was drinking through happiness, sadness, joy, pain, everything. Um, and so when somebody told me, like, try going the weekend without a drink, I literally said to them, well, what do you do? Like, what do you do on the weekend if you're not drinking, recovering, recovering? from the drinking, you know, sobering up, not, not sobering up, but hangover nursing your hangover or looking for plans, which include drinking alcohol. And I, I didn't know, I honestly, I remember being so terrified and people saying, and and what I realized was that I was just scared to live, you know, and by drinking and pouring alcohol in my body, I could live in this non-existent space of just, or the space of just existing and not living. Um, and, you know, so you hear about, and I love what you said because in-person meetings are so helpful in my recovery because mm-hmm. I love being able to see another person. Like we talked about this too, like feeling their energy. And when you walk into a room of Alcoholics Anonymous or excuse me, a Twelve Step meeting, um, you feel the energy of other people who are there trying to make their lives better, and you can feel that from somebody else. Mm-hmm. You know, you can feel that somebody is trying to improve their their well-being or they're tired of where they are and they want to feel better. Right. Cause we get, I don't know. and not, <laughs> I don't know. You get one shot, right? Like you get one shot at this thing and there's no at life and there's no, there's no fun in just existing. And the story, you know, my story, um, you know, I grew up, um, I grew up just outside of Baltimore. Uh, my dad was a police officer. My mom was in education and we lived, you know, a pretty normal life. Like, you know, pretty, we, we, um, I was, I excelled in school. I was a great athlete early on. Um, my parents did everything in their power to accommodate those. And, um, we used to live in a tiny little town called Whiteford, Maryland, which is North of Bel Air. I don't know if, you know, and, and my parents would drive me an hour to the pool every day. I was a swimmer. um, and I would do doubles at you know double practices, and so I was always looking to be better at whatever it is I was doing. I was a firstborn, <laughs> was that, that type A. I, you know, I wanted to excel, and at some point, um, you know, I had this like, you know, someone said if you studied harder, I got straight A's. If you study harder. Um, you would be a better student, and if you practiced harder, you would be faster in the pool. And I remember thinking to myself, like, "But I'm already really good. I'm, I'm the best at swimming, and in my age group in the country at the time, I was a distance swimmer. Um, I get straight A's." This last book report, you know, I can still remember my teacher and Mr. Brown, who I adored. A plus plus. I read. I read. Um, uh, was it Jane Eyre? In like fifth grade, sixth grade, or something, you know. And you I had got a plus plus. Like, an A plus. I still have it. I still have the paper. I got an A plus plus. And and wow, someone was like, "Well, you're not." Because I'd gone like I did a drawing and I did this other project that went with it. Like I always went that extra step, and someone and and I remember thinking like, "Well, I'm already doing my best, but that's still not good enough." And there was like a switch that was just like, "You're not good enough." But if I really think back, like I, I, always remember wanting to feel connected to other humans and not being able to. Like I, I, never. it sounds so funny, but like you know, in elementary school, like I wanted to have that best friend. I wanted to have something that was mine, like that connection. And like, and I never, I never felt like I could get it because I felt like everybody else around me was, was prettier, or smarter, or funnier, or. Excelled, you know, because I compared my insides with other people's outsides, even from an early age. and mm-hmm. and i and I never had that feeling of belonging. and um and I you know I, I didn't put words on it then. like I didn't know what that meant then. but you know, looking back, those are the words that I assigned to that feeling now. and and in, in, you know, my first drink, like, I don't remember. I mean, I started, oh, I smoked marijuana in middle school and, um, you know, tried other, other substances to make myself feel something or feel numb or check out. And, um, but my first drink, you know, I think I was in, uh, I guess in high school, middle school or high school, like either eighth or ninth grade and just trying it because I wanted to fit in because I wanted to belong, because I didn't have that inner, you know, that inner sense of peace or happiness or joy. And that's what I was striving for. Um, and so I tried alcohol and I didn't like it. I didn't particularly like the taste of beer and that's whatever, you know, I'm from Baltimore and we ended up, we ended up moving, um, To be closer to the pool, so my parents really sacrificed a lot to give. I have a sister and a brother, both of whom swim as well, Um, and my parents really sacrificed a lot to make sure that their kids had what we needed. You know, my dad, as I told you, was a police officer. He also worked at a bar bouncing, Mm -hmm. so we could have money for swimming. And you know, my mom taught, and she made sure we had food on the table. And so, um, it was. (laughs) so it was, you know, we, we just grew up in a pretty normal family and pretty normal household, but I, I started drinking, oh, Towson, we grew up in Towson and that's Mm -hmm. where the cross was huge. And so people started, you know, the guys would drink and I wanted to fit in. And so I would drink beer and I didn't like it, but I kept doing it because I wanted to be a part of, I wanted to be a part of a group. I wanted to be a part of something. Um, and there was always just this void, this emptiness, this never, you know, this longing to find something and, you know, fast forward now, now to sobriety, like what I realized was that, that hole that is only filled by a spiritual program, you know, by spirituality. And like, this isn't a religious program per se, but it's, you know, realizing that there's something out there greater than myself, Mm -hmm. that I wasn't the center of attention, that I wasn't, (laughs) I wasn't it, you know? Um, Yeah. And so I just started drinking and I, in particularly, yeah, love the taste. I wanted my a friend of mine who I later realized who had later helped me get sober. Um, you know, we'd stand outside the liquor store in Towson. We were 16 years old and we'd have 20 bucks. And we Towson University, it was Towson State then it was right there, and you know cute young girls and we're like hey mister can you buy us some boone's farm and we would <laughs>
0: boone's farm all right
1: oh boone's farm yeah. i mean at least tasted, you know tasted somewhat good compared to beer and so we would split a bottle of boone's farm and just hang out in a field you know with other high school kids and yeah. um at the time i didn't have a lot of consequences in high school other than you know my grade. well my grades started slipping i wasn't as g- good in swimming um i would show up to practices in high school drunk or high um and it was just getting by at the time my brother and sister started to excel in swimming and my my um parents got divorced and you know at that time then a lot of the focus went to my brother and sister who were excelling in swimming and i kind of faded into the background and i I felt like I faded into the background. You know, maybe that wasn't because I feel like as an alcoholic, sometimes I have a warped sense of what reality is. You know, when I was drinking, like my perception of people, places, and things weren't always an accurate assessment. (laughs) Um, And I just, I just existed, you know, and I remember in high school, my sister went to the Olympic trials when she, when I was 16, when I was 18, because when I was a senior in high school, my sister was the fastest swimmer in the world at age um, 14. She was third in the world. I'm sorry. She was third in the world at age 14. She was on track to make the Olympic team. We swam in a program that was known for producing Olympic athletes. Um, and so my mom was traveling with her. My dad was traveling with her. Um, and I remember one night just, I think I got alcohol poisoning, and I fell, and mm. I broke my nose, and like, I smashed it on the table. I didn't tell anybody, and I've never told the story publicly. And and I and I woke up the next day, being like, "Oh my gosh, what happened?" And then I got in a plane, and I drove, and I flew to a Olympic trials where my sister was competing to meet my mom, my brother, and I flew out together. Fast forward to my college. Um, you know, college intake. So I was an athlete. I got a scholarship to swim at the university of Richmond. I had a full scholarship. Yeah. Um, so it was a pretty decent summer. It's Division one. And, and, and I went to my high school. I mean, you know, they do physicals. They do um, physicals before you participate in athletics in college. Mm-hmm. And the, the pediatrician was like, when did you break your nose? You had deviated septum. So maybe I didn't break it. It's like deviate and it was cracked. And I was like, uh, oh my gosh, because I didn't even realize. Like, I just kept going. You know, I was drunk, I was a blackout, and and I remember looking at her, I'm like, uh, I'm a swimmer, and I hit my face on the wall, which is like,
0: just... No, wait, now, so I, you, you know. had broken your note. Now, this is some time later, right? This isn't recent. Was this some no, time so earlier?
1: This, yeah, I mean, this is when I was a senior in high school. Um, it it would have been March, because my sister was at the Olympic trial. So, it was in March of... Crash, 96. So, you, um, you, in other
0: words, you, you're, the deviated septum would have been there for a while. This wasn't, we're not talking a couple of weeks. This is years, possibly. This possible. is a couple of months. Oh, a couple you know, months. A couple okay. months.
1: Mm. Yeah. And so, she's like, you know, doing all the checkups, making sure. And she's like, what ha- you know, what happened to your nose? Your nose is cracked. Like, your septum is cracked. Or it's, and I was like, or you did something. Like, there was trauma. And I, and I remember thinking... Oh my gosh! I didn't do anything. I was like, Oh my gosh! I did. I face planted a table when I was in when I was drinking, um, and I just you know made up a lie. And it was kind of like, and that's kind of what I did to cover up my drinking. And I you know, and they you say you hear these stories about alcoholics protecting your your drink, protecting your ism, protecting your alcoholism. Like mm-hmm. it was my best friend. It was my, and they didn't you know realize it at the time. And even In high school, I remember thinking, and I don't know where it came from, I had, you know, young love, I was dating a guy and he had, you know, kissed another girl and it felt like the end of the world. And I remember grabbing a bottle of Goldschlager thinking, this is going to fix it. This will make me feel better. This will make me forget what's happening. And I don't know where that came from. You know, um, my parents will tell you, you know, depending on who you ask, like there's some problem drinking potentially on both sides. But I also come from a family where, you know, I was told if you just look good on the outside, it doesn't matter what's happening on the inside. If people think you're okay, if you look the part, if you look happy, then that's okay. You know, and we didn't talk about a lot of things. We didn't talk about struggles, you know, and so I just learned to kind of deal with it. And, and eventually it'll just go away. Um, and so what that looked like for me is swallowing down all of this pain, trauma, sadness, whatever it was with alcohol, you know, and eventually that comes up. <laughs> eventually it has to come out somehow. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, fast. I went to college and I, I thought I, you know, college is a great place for an alcoholic because you can hide it pretty well. You can always find someone to drink with you. You can always find um and again, like comparing your out insides to somebody's outside. Like I assumed everybody else was drinking like me, but I was so blackout drunk. I mean, I would drink to blackout. I would drink to forget. I would drink to numb. And so I did things I wasn't proud of. I found myself in situations I would never be in without drinking, you know, like getting in a car with a stranger and driving out to rural Virginia. I mean that's just not smart, you know. As a college age kid and with another friend, we're like, "Oh yeah, we're gonna go hang out and play pool." It's like we don't even know these people, you know. It's just just making decisions that weren't wise or safe. And by the grace of God, you know, God, they say God protects babies and drunks, and I find <laughs> that to be true <laughs> because it's I true. Have found myself, yeah, in situations. I mean, you know, going the wrong way on the metro and ending up in Branch Avenue at 2 a.m., you know, like, here, to live in D.C., and I meant to go to College Park where my car was because I was going to drive my car drunk the rest of the way home. You know, things like that where it's like, it, by the grace of God, I've been saved and I'm not dead or severely injured. Um, And I don't, you know, and I don't take that lightly and I don't forget that. And, yeah. you know, <clears throat> and being a blackout drunk, you know, I drank wine because I was like, well, wine isn't what drunks drink. Wine is, cool and wine is you know chic and so it's cultured i would never it's cultured i love that you know that's what i always told myself yeah red wine or champagne but it wasn't really champagne it was like j roger sparkling wine for 3.99 at cbs you know but it was (laughs) i I love that cultured. Um, yeah, and so that's what I did, and it, you know, and what I realized is everything I was doing. Eventually, I found out, like in the you know the the big book is I was doing all of the things to protect my drinking. I would buy a case of wine to give out at Christmas, but I would drink it before I could even give a bottle out to anybody. I would flip the bottles backwards so the the open you know in a wine rack. Because they were empty, but if anybody came over, they would think that I had this you know collection of wine. Um, I found myself in relationships with people who were equally as unhealthy as I was when it came to using substances, you know mm-hmm. smoking marijuana or drinking alcohol or and it was just a disconnected. So for someone that wanted to feel so connected from an early age, I continuously put myself in relationships or found myself in spaces that would disconnect me from people. Um, and the more I drank, the more I lost that sense of self and, um, you know, fast forward, I, I did all the things I drove you know, I drove drunk. I, um, I woke up next to people I didn't know. I, um, you know, we talk about those, those consequences. I never got arrested. I was never put in jail. I never lost a job. I never lost a home. I didn't completely, you know, lose my family. But all of those things are waiting for me if I had continued to drink because those are the not yets. And I believe that. And I believe that, you know, so what happened, you know, so that's kind of my story. I mean, I was a blackout drunk. I, I, And I felt lost. I felt like a lost, scared little girl every single day. I wake up in pain, physical pain, emotional pain, sadness. Um, and every time I drink, it's like my my bottom got deeper and deeper. And it took a lot more to get up to the baseline of just finding a little bit of contentness and happiness. And I'd wake up, I went from relationship to relationship, you know, one guy was just smoking marijuana. But I felt like if I had somebody, if I had another warm body, then I was okay. It didn't matter if we were kind to each other, it didn't matter if we loved each other, it didn't matter if we were happy it was existing. And so, you know, I found myself in relationships with men who would, you know, smoke marijuana 24 seven and I would just drink and he'd sit at one end of the couch, I'd sit at the other and that, you know, that was it. And then I found myself in a relationship with another who came from an alcoholic family. So the chaos is what he was used to. And I thrived on that because I loved the drama. Um, It became abusive. You know, there's a lot of emotional abuse, a lot of screaming, a lot of slamming doors. Um, all of these things that if I had a daughter, I would never want her to be involved with or to be involved around. And the thing was, like, I don't believe these people that I was with are bad people. I just believe that we were there. You know, it's like feeding the fire, feeding, fueling the fire. You know, like, mm-hmm. um, and I hid it. I tried to hide it from everybody. My family knew I. Had a problem with alcohol that I drank too much, but they didn't. I don't think they realized the scope and the scale of which I would go to any lengths to get messed up, to just go numb, or to just forget. And, you know, like every day my day looked the same. I would, I lived in Laurel, Maryland. I'd take the train with a cup of coffee to work in Washington, D.C. I would kind of do my job. I mean, I would do my job, but you know, I was just checking and checking out and at home I would pour wine into my, um, my coffee cup and I would drink it on the way home. And then I, by the time I got home with, you know, the, the person I was living with, like I would already got a head start, and then we drink two bottles of wine at least every night. Um, and I do the same thing every day on the weekends. It was like, It was on, you know, that's all it was. I didn't go anywhere. I didn't see anything. I didn't spend time with friends. I just drank. And I'd only want to do activities that involve drinking, you know, I would drink to go to the grocery store. I'd get drunk to do laundry. If I was cleaning the house, I'd have a Bloody Mary. I mean, it was always, it was always present. And what I felt like I was just fearful of, I think, finding out who I really was, like getting to know myself on a deeper level. And and what happened, you know, how I got into the program is a friend that I referenced about drinking the Boone's Farm. She, um, it was during the time of uh, MySpace, you know, the original like mm-hmm. social media. Yeah. And, you know, you could pick a song and you could put, if you drank or smoke, and it was like a way to find people. And she said, I connected with her and it said, drink, smoke. And it was like, no and no. I remember thinking, that's not true. I, we used to smoke and drink do create you know this is what and so I reached out to her because at the time I knew that I started to question my drinking um, and she was like your elevator is going down and you can get off at any time and what I later realized in the rooms in the twelve step rooms is that my elevator was going down fast and I used the steps to climb back up to the top first i had to put down the alcohol and then i used the steps to climb back up to a baseline of finding, you know, finding myself, like realizing who I was. But, and I remember, and she's like, that's when she said, just try to go the weekend, try to go the weekend without drinking. Like, you're insane. <laughs> How to go the weekend? <laughs> who does that? <laughs> who does that? What? And I remember asking her, I go, what do you do? Like, what do you do then? And, and that was an honest question. I wasn't being funny. It wasn't rhetoric. It wasn't like, I literally was like, what do you do? And so, you know, I didn't, I, I was like, whatever. And I ended up, I was in a relationship at the time and um, we'd been dating, de- we'd been together for three months. It was just like, he had been living with another woman for four years. He had just bought her a ring, they owned a house together. I met him, he moved out with her. In with, it was just all of this stuff it, it just, it wasn't who I was, but it was like, I'm like, oh, this is my, this is my Prince Charming. He's gonna save me because once I get a house, once I get married, once I have kids, then the happiness comes. It was always based on getting something or you know arriving at a place in life that was gonna make me happy. And you know, as we know, <laughs> none of that's true. Uh, what I later found out, none of that is true. And so we had been dating three months and he's like, we need to go to couples counseling my friends are like, you need to break up. You've been dating for three months. You haven't been married for 30 years. And you're looking to save. this is called a breakup. Like, that's what you do. Like, you don't need to save anything, you know, but it's like, no, this is, you know, it's like that insanity. Nope. I'm going to go to couples counseling. And, you know, thankfully I did because the woman, I started seeing her and that was my first, um, Experience with the outside help with a the therapist. And she said, Do you think, you know, he was like, She has a problem with drinking. She drinks all the time. She's an alcoholic. And she said, Do you think you have a problem with alcohol? I'm like, I only drink two, two drink, you know, a little life, only two drinks a day. And she goes, Well, how big are those drinks? Mm-hmm. I was like, Gosh, you're good, you know, because <laughs> they were, they were big cups. They weren't like, they weren't like the little wine cups. And so she wanted to start coming to me independently. so I started seeing her and she suggested, she suggested, her, but she's like, would you want to go to a, a 12 step meeting? I'm like, no, who does that? No, that's no. Like those are, those are filled with, with old men, church basements. They were the ones that were living under the bridge. You know, like I had this idea that of what an alcoholic looked like. And it wasn't me. It wasn't a, a college graduate who worked in Washington, D.C., who drank wine sometimes, who blacked out all the time, who woke up with pain in her kidneys every morning, who said, you know, every day by noon, I was going to, you know, I'd wake up in the morning, I'd sit in the shower, on the, on the shower floor, knees to my chest, water beating on my back, crying in pain, kidneys hurting. I can't do this anymore. What am I doing? I can't do this anymore. Get out of the shower, drink my coffee, go to work. Noon would come around. I feel better. Maybe I can, and that was the cycle. And but I thought that was normal. You know, that's what people do in their in their mid twenties. And um, I and so I you know I agreed to go to an AA meeting with her, and and she came with me. You know, she's like, "Well, when do you want to go?" I was like, "Maybe next week. Maybe I don't know. I don't know when. When do they have them?" (laughs) She's like, "Every day." Yeah, they have <laughs> Multiple times, times
0: a day. Multiple
1: times a day <laughs> in lots of locations. And the, I was like, uh oh, golly, you know. And so she, we went on a Sunday morning um, in Bowie, Maryland. And I did not drink the night before. And I felt so victorious. I wanted a medal. I'm like, I didn't drink last night. This is a huge deal. You should be thankful. <laughs> you know, you should be proud of me. And, um, I remember I walked into the meeting with a coffee in my hand or no, I had coffee in the car and I was like, I can't take this into the meeting because everybody in that meeting is going to assume I'm drinking. And because it was all about me, you know, I assumed that everybody in the meeting was going to be looking at me, talking about me, wondering why I was there, what happened to her. And it wasn't the case. I walked in, sat in the back. And I remember in that meeting, a woman, I beg, she was speaking about abuse. And I looked at her and I said, you don't, I remember thinking to myself, like, Why is she talking about this so openly? You don't talk about these things in public. You keep those things really quiet. You don't talk about when you struggle. You don't talk about abuse. You don't talk about anger. You don't. Why are these people being so open and honest? And they didn't understand that open and honesty—you know—real honesty is the way to heal. Like you, you're only as sick as your secrets. And this woman was there to try to stay sober one day at a time, and so was everybody else in that meeting. But I wasn't ready for it, and I walked out of the meeting. I said. I won't drink, but I'm never going back there. It was so intimidating and so terrifying because I wasn't ready to get honest with myself. And I left and I stayed. I didn't drink for three months. I white knuckled it. You know, you you read it, there's a difference in not drinking and being sober. And not drinking means just not pouring alcohol in your body. Being sober is, you know, taking the active steps to live a better life. And, you know, they're, you know, following steps in the big book and working with another alcoholic and calling sponsors. Like there are, you know, things that, that helped me feel better, but I wasn't ready for that. And I wasn't, I didn't understand it. And I I got a big book and I kind of read through it and I was hoping it would just through osmosis, like sink in, you know, to my subconscious and heal me because I didn't want to do the work. And I kind of did that dance, the three month dance of not drinking for three months and then it's Christmas and it's New Year's and you can't go through New Year's without drinking. So I would drink and everything they tell you in the big book, which is, you know, a, a book of, of recovery. Um, it gets worse. Your addiction is just waiting for you to come back. And I found out the hard way that that was accurate. And I was in bed for a weekend and I was in so much pain. I couldn't even drink the next day, you know, and that was not the case because normally by noon, like I said, I'd be ready to go back out. Nope. So much pain. And then I waited, you know, i drinking for three more months. And it's my birthday, and on your birthday. Like, what do you do? So I stayed home and I drank. Um, I got really drunk. My dad came the next day to give me my birthday present and I couldn't even get out of bed to, you know, to say hi to him. I was so hung over. And looking back, like I, I can't imagine the sadness, you know, like, because my dad would say like, you've got to stop, you've got to stop this. Like, you've got to get help. Like, what do you, like this isn't, this isn't you, you know? And I'm like, it's just the anger, the protection, the protection of, you know, protecting my ism, protecting my alcoholism. And, um, you know, I continued, and I and I ended up leaving that relationship because it was—I mean, yeah, it was just me and my alcohol. We moved and moved down to DC. I was working in Washington, and I and it was on. And at that point, that was when my drinking stopped working for me. You know, you hear these stories of when it stops working, and there was—I drank two bottles of wine one night. I, went across, I ran out, I went walked across the street, there was a hotel to where I was living, and I drank six glasses of wine in 30 minutes. And my preferences, they were the little ones that you get at a restaurant, <laughs> you know, not the big ones I was pouring at home. Mm. And it didn't work. I just got sick. I went home and I threw up. And I was like, you failed me. My best friend has finally failed me. This isn't working anymore. And I don't understand why. And I was you know, cause you hear these stories when it just stops working and it stopped working for me because I was chasing that next best drink, that next best high, that next best feeling of whatever it is that I wasn't getting. And, and I didn't know, you know, I didn't know what to do. And I just kind of chalked it up like whatever. And then event this, the relationship that had ended. He was like, you know what? Like, if you don't get help, I'm going to tell your family how bad this really is. And I remember thinking, I don't want my family to know how I'm bad. They'll be so disappointed in me, you know, and they knew I was a problem drinker and they knew I, you know, struggled as I just said, like my dad had seen me like crumpled up in bed, but there was something about that. And so I I started to contact some out, outpatient rehab facilities <laughs> because I was like, if I go inpatient, then that means I have a real problem and I'm not willing to admit that I have a real problem. So I'll go to these outpatients. You know facilities and and I did and I checked into one and would go after work and um, I did this dance, I'd wake up, go to work go to outpatient, come home wake up, go to work and they had this feelings management the third hour and it was everything I never knew I needed. She talked about all the things that I was feeling in my body the clenched jaw, the fact that I walked through life with my fists balled up just waiting for somebody not, I didn't want to physically fight anybody, but I was just like bracing myself for the next bad thing to happen. Um, and I didn't realize that my shoulders were at my ears. My jaw was clenched. I was in this fight or flight mode all the time. And slowly I started on a you and know, my shoulders dropped from my ears, but drug and a prescription that, you know, that would, if you drink, it it won't work. Like it won't absorb in your body and you just get sick. And so I think it was, you know, intended as a deterrent. And so we, um, go every day, we'd check in, say how we were feeling. And the first couple of days, you know, they call this pink cloud. I was like, I'm feeling great. I'm not drinking any alcohol. I'm, you know, kind of sleeping better. Like this is great. And then about two weeks in, it wasn't great. And I was sitting in there and I just started to cry. And I don't know why it just started to come up. And the thing that I liked about it was they told me they're like, these are all the emotions that you've poured alcohol on top of for all of these years. They're going to come out eventually. It's going to come out, you know? And, and I just started crying and I was sobbing and I said, I don't know what's I don't know what's happening. I don't know what's wrong. I'm sad. I'm confused. I'm scared. Like all of these things are happening at once and I don't know what to do about it. And I don't know. And they clapped. They clapped for me. And I remember thinking, like, you're crazy. Why are you clapping for me? This is embarrassing. I'm telling you that there's something wrong with me and you're happy. And they're like, Yeah, you're only as sick as your secrets. You've got to let it out. You can't keep stuffing it down because it's gonna come out, you know, it's gonna come out eventually. And you know, go back on Mondays and they say, What meetings did you go to this week? And I was held accountable and so I would go to meetings and I'd get numbers. And the craving to drink was lifted pretty quickly for me. And I was pretty grateful for that. But I did have a craving around six months. I had been to work for six months and I had a craving and I shamed myself. I'm like, you should be perfect by now. Why are you having these cravings? You sh- you you know, this isn't this isn't how it is. And then went to a meeting and I shared about it and um, people said, Yeah, that's pretty normal.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I was like, What? You know, and so, you know, for me, those meetings were so important to a community of people that understood exactly what I was feeling. And that's all I wanted. So, what I found is that going into their in the their meetings, the 12 step recovery meetings, is that I got that sense of community because not everybody. Maybe not everybody could understand what I was going through, but there was at least one person that would say, I understand, and I felt Mm -hmm. less alone. And the more meetings I went to and the more people I talked to, the more I realized is that I'm not unique in my suffering, but there's a collection of other people that feel the same way I do, and we are all in this one space trying to be better, and that's what I wanted. And that first year of sobriety, I did every single thing that my sponsor. i I worked with a you know a woman that had fifteen years now, right? Like fifteen years seems like a lot because I was like six months, and I you know, you and I talked about this offline. It's that mm-hmm. those first months, three months, six months, those are way harder than fifteen years. Oh, well, I know?
0: think, yeah, definitely. yep.
1: You know, what fifteen years just presents more opportunities to to live in grace, you know, to to use the tools that I've learned in the program. But those first few those first few months, you're learning new tools. And that's hard because for me, my entire life, my only tool is picking up a bottle. That was it. And what I learned by going to these meetings and connecting with other people who are struggling with the same thing that I was, is that there are other tools to manage it. You know, other tools to manage my feelings, other tools, you know, what do i do when i'm happy i call a friend what do i do when i'm sad i work out you know what do i do every day pray and meditate like there are things that that fill up my cup that don't my my metaphorical cup not my you know drink cup um and i and i just did that one two three you know steps one two three turn my will and my life over realize that you know my life was unmanageable and and asked for god to really you know You know, turn my will and my life over to the care of God as I understood Him, and what that meant for me was that there was something higher than myself that was that was supporting me. You know, whoever it was. So praying for me is asking for help, and meditation is listening to the guidance, and so both of those are are very important in my life. But those, you know, those first, I I I took everything to a meeting. I, I cried, I've, I say ugly cried, I've ugly cried to the point where I've, my eyes are red and swollen by the end and I have, my nose is running and I have copious amounts of tissues in my hands, mm. but I've been real. And, and that, the first time, because sometimes you just can't help it. Sometimes I can't, I'm I'm so, in such a distraught space and I don't know where else to go. And for me, a 12-step meeting is always a safe space because there's always somebody there that's willing to help what
0: does your life look like now? You celebrated 15 years, which is
1: June eighth. Uh-huh.
0: Phenomenal. It really is. But um
1: what's oh. life like now? Oh, now I'm gonna cry. Um now I'm gonna cry. Oh, After I'm sorry. And no, I no, and you're I'm on the crier. phone, so I can't
0: give you a tissue. <laughs> if I'm you were sitting good. right here, I would have tissues for you, but
1: um I'm, I'm good. Yeah. Like I'm a crier. I'm yeah. very like I'm emotive. I mean, I'm a, and um you know, so at five years, I was diagnosed with severe depression, and mm-hmm. I was put on medication for a little bit. Um, at 10 years, my child was born. I have mm. a five-year-old son. Congrats. And at 15 years, I finalized a divorce. And so I've been through a lot these 15 years, like some good, some challenging, but they've all been, it sounds so cheesy as I'm about to say this, they've all been character building. and um, But every single problem I took into the rooms and people were able to help and make me feel, you know, less alone last year. I mean, I could go on for a very long time about, you know, the pandemic and how unfortunately meetings were closed down, you know, things like store, you know, alcohol stores, the sale of alcohol, alcohol was so, was was like 200% increase or something. I mean, I've seen the stats. Yeah. Yeah they were open alcohol delivery but but alcoholics couldn't meet even in an outside space i mean it was and the people in my meetings who relapsed on things like vanilla um on mouthwash it's
0: hand sanitizer yep
1: it it, it yeah yeah i've seen it, it is, all yep it it makes me so angry and upset because not only are we not able to get the help as addicts that we need, but it's contribute. I felt my opinion that it was contributing. I mean, the the use of alcohol went up. I feel like alcoholism has risen the death. I mean, you know, you and I know the stat that, you know, in 2000 more people died from alcohol related deaths and alcoholism than COVID under 65, those people under 65. I mean, alcoholism kills 3 million people every year, but that's not it's not something that's. I mean, so like I can go, I feel like I can go on a rampage. Okay. But what's my life like now? Um, so, you know, it was very hard because we, I had to, you know, go to the zoom meetings, which was fine, but it was like putting a bandaid on, you know, right. it's, it's not the same as walking into a room of people who are all there for the common purpose of being better that day, putting down a drink and connecting with another alcoholic. Um, and I never understood when I first, you know, got, got sober. I was like, I, I I have to go to these 12-step meetings every day. I have to. Now I'm like, I get to. I'm so grateful yeah. yep. that there are other people who welcome me with open arms every time I walk into a room. Like, I'm grateful I get to. I, I don't have to. I get to. And this is a gift. And it's so funny how your perspective changes you know and now I I, what I've realized was and I think I shared this with you offline is that I was very private about my recovery for a very long time and 15 years was the first time that I spoke about it openly and there are friends that know I don't drink but didn't know why and what I've realized is that it's more important for me to to put my voice out there because it's hard for women to get sober I mean it is it's you know and I didn't realize that someone said to me how hard is it for you as a woman to walk in and maybe there's only men in the meeting. And now I don't realize it. But in the beginning I was like, Oh yeah, is this a men's meeting? And they're like, no, all are welcome. And it's, I think that there's a lot of shame around women. I mean, even in, you know, in the, in the big book, it was written, you know, the thirties or something, but like, it wasn't, it wasn't as common for women as it was for men. And I still find that there's a greater personally opinion. There's a greater stigma around females who are addicts than there are around men. And mm-hmm. and I think that can sometimes be hard for women. And so what I realized is that lending my voice to that and saying like, Hey, look, I have 15 years. I did it. It's the hardest thing I've ever done, but it's the best thing I've ever done because it, and it, it radiates out into every other area of my life. And because of that, I now live a full life of genuine connection and pure happiness, pure sadness too. I mean, don't get me wrong, like I feel everything, you know, but I feel everything, I'm not numbing. And when I got sober, the last time I went out, there was um, Pride Parade was happening in DC and I lived in DuPont Circle um, when I first moved to DC. And I remember feeling so sick because I was so hungover. And what I realized is people are living their lives. People are genuinely happy and living it. And I was existing. I was floating through life without a purpose, without feeling, without anything. I was just floating through life numb. And so that's when we said early on, like life gets better. It is a beast and it is hard. And it is, you know, getting sober is, is hard, but we don't do it alone. You know, we, we do it with other people. And that's the beauty of it and that, it's this collective healing of people that want to be better.
0: Yeah. And, and now- you know, when you, you talked about going to meetings, there, there's a, a, a shift, you know, I, I've had people say to me, and maybe you've had this as well. Hey, so you still go to meetings. Why do, why do you have to do that? Do you like, you have to go mm. to meetings all the time? And I go, no, you don't get it. Um, it. Like you, you very articulately said it's no, it's a privilege to go, but I go to meetings and I'm sure you go to meetings now. With the understanding that the reason why I go is because the newcomer needs to see Mm -hmm. that it's possible that you have 15 years, I'm coming up on Mm -hmm. 10 years, and they need to uh, see, you know, the the young women, uh, everybody that comes in the the meeting needs to look at somebody like you and say, you know what, Uh, it's possible, I can do that. I, I can you know, you, you're the hope for the new person. And and mm-hmm. if you're new to the program or if you're not familiar with 12-step programs, that's really what it comes down to is it's not about you anymore. It's about helping the next person. And that's why we go to meetings. At least I, I'll speak for myself. That's why I go to meetings now, to be seen so other people mm-hmm. can see it. Would mm-hmm. you agree with that? I
1: put it I, I, 100%. And it's like, you know, to keep it, you have to give it away, mm-hmm. right? It, you, we're not, and it's like, it's, I love this. Like love is unconditional. Like there's not a limited amount of love and there's not a limited amount of healing. So you can give as much love and healing as possible, you know? So it's not something that we have to hoard. It's not something I have to hoard for myself. Like if I give away this, you know, this wisdom, or if I help a newcomer, it's going to take away from me. And, and that's not the mentality when it comes to 12 step programs, Mm -hmm. you know, the mentality is that helping another helps me. And I Mm -hmm. didn't understand that when I came in, you know, um, And I understand that now because like I think good people want to help others. We want to, you know, we want to, we want to offer the hug. We want to offer the call. Like when somebody calls me like I'm having a bad day, I'm like, okay, let's just talk. Mm-hmm. because nine times out of ten if you're having a bad day there's somebody in a meeting that's having a good day and they're going to help talk you through it mm-hmm. because when I'm sitting alone with my own thoughts I can create anything I can tell myself that I'm the worst person on the planet I can convince myself that the, you know, the world is coming to an end I can. But, but when you start to talk to another alcoholic or addict and you say hey what about this and they're like but have you thought about it this way and you're mm-hmm. like oh no I didn't and they're like so what if it really does work out or what if it really does X, Y, Z? Like maybe you're not, you know, not. maybe you're wrong. Like maybe it doesn't work out the way that you think it will. And it's like, oh yeah. And sometimes you just need another person to look at you and say like, I see you. I love you. Yeah. If it works out that way, great. I'll still be here, but maybe it's going to work out better.
0: Right. And we call that, we call that catastrophizing, meaning yeah. <laughs> worrying about things that never happen. And yeah, know, when we, and which real. which we are programmed to to think, and you know, I think another reason why it's important for for people like us to go to meetings is because you mentioned earlier that there's. Like you, you went to a meeting and you thought, well, these are people living under a bridge and, and you had your, in your mind, what this was all uh-huh. about, what the, the types of people that are in these meetings and the fact, what I've learned over the years, and I'm sure you've learned over the years is, uh, the fact is that very few people fit the category of what our stereo, it's funny how the stereotype has been one way. We think a certain type of person ends up under the bridge. Um, and by the way, I'll, I'll just throw out, keep drinking or drugging, um, that will be all of us, you, will. you know, if that, that, totally. that, you know, if that's your stereotype, don't worry, keep drinking, drugging, that, that, that will be, that'll be you. That'll be me.
1: But not yet. Right. Yeah. But not have,
0: Um. you know, because that's, and, and actually when you get into the DSM criteria for substance use disorder, that that's one of the criteria is you keep lowering your standards um as you, oh, yeah. as your use goes on. But um. the fact is that most people that are meetings are are very successful. And I know that when I went through treatment myself, that's one of the things that it shocked me was I would sit where I was, we we would have to sit at a table like every meal you sat with the same group of guys, you know, in my case. And I remember just being blown away, like, God, these are some of the smartest people I've ever met, some of the talented, most talented. It seemed like everybody played a musical instrument, and not only did they play it, but they were, like, really good at it, and um, well-read, and, and like, I was just blown away at, like, the intellect that would be sitting at the the table, and it was not what I thought. It was like, wow, Mm -hmm. these are very successful people. And I think that's an important message, too, because, uh, you know, it shows people that we are all in this together. In the big book that you mentioned, it talks about the different stories and, and, and the different types of people that fall into addiction. That affects all of us. We call it the equal opportunity destroyer. Addiction is. It doesn't matter who you are, mm-hmm. what your success is, because uh, in my own world, in my own chosen profession, I in some circles I would be considered very successful in that. And, and, and I get this a lot. And maybe you get this a lot. Is well, how were how are you an alcoholic? I mean, you're like this successful guy. How did right? that happen? And you're like, yeah, I don't think you get it. You see, that's the stereotype. You think that it only affects people that aren't successful. But it's important to understand that this affects all of us. I've met, and I'm sure Hillary, you've met, you've mm-hmm. walked into meetings, mm-hmm. highly successful people. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and that, and I think sometimes that might be part of the problem because there's a passage in the big book and quote me if I'm in, and, and you know, if you have the big book memorized, Hillary, you can correct I me. Do not. I'm, <laughs> I'm sure there's somebody out there listening. We've all met those people yeah. and have every single page memorized. Yes. Uh, what is it? Um, egomaniacs with low self self-esteem. Do you with remember that? Superiority
1: complex. Superior. What is it? Ego. An egomaniac with inferiority complex. Yes.
0: I I think it's, you know, it's, I I was kind of that way. I'm, you know, the the funny thing about addiction is I think a lot of it's our personality trait. I'm incredibly Uh driven and there's a whole history as to why that is. But my drivenness I've discovered is actually because in a lot of ways I feel inferior. So I will, but here's what will happen. I will just outwork you. I will outwork you to succeed. Now that can, that's taken me to some heights in my life, but damn you're killing me at the same time. Can you relate to that?
1: Yeah. And it's like the comparison too, right? It's like, I need to be better than you because there's not enough. And that goes back to like, there's enough for everybody. Mm-hmm. Right. And it's like high tide races, all ships, like be kind. I mean, it's, it, it's just that Mentality that you have to step over somebody or on top of somebody to get what you want or to right. be better, and it's like in the rooms we are all. To you said it is equal opportunity. We are all equal, just because that you sit on some court bench, you know, or whatever it fill in the blank, or you run a. Fortune 100 company or whatever it is. When you walk in those rooms, you are all the same Mm -hmm. because we all come from a place where we were as low and everybody's bottom is different. Like I've been in meetings where people have said, I blacked out and lost my readers and decided it was time to come in. And then I heard a story about somebody and this is how I knew I belonged. I heard a story about a man who was homeless that drops his bottle of alcohol. It's all he had. Dropped it on the ground, went and got a straw and sucked it up. And I was like, yeah, I get that. Mm Mm-hmm. If, if that was me. You see I people no like money, us, I would sit I, there
0: and go, that's genius. Yeah, <laughs> I would exactly. have done that. I, and that's when you know, okay, I said it because I would I have done here. that. Yeah.
1: Yeah, exactly. And that's where I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, I belong here. Because you, who is, you were homeless, you would, I would have done that. Yeah. And then you hear somebody else who I look at, you know, who has 40 years of continuous sobriety they are successful. They have, you know, all, all the, 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 you know, all of the wonderful things that, that being, you know, successful, whatever has, you know, like a beautiful home and a great marriage and children from the outside looks picture perfect. And then this person's telling me that they did the same things I did. I'm like, Oh, yep. Oh, that makes, that makes me feel a part of, that makes me feel okay. And that makes me know that I'm in the right place because by doing the steps that you've done and taking the actions that you have makes me, it potentially greater, you know, closer to the things that I want, where if I were continuously, like you said, drinking and drinking, I would be going down. Like I would not be going up. I would not be achieving the things that I am today. I would be, I would be under a bridge. You're spot on because mm-hmm. all those things are waiting for me the second I pick up a drink. Because the thing with me is when I pour alcohol in my body, I don't know where the night's going to go. I don't know right. where the day is going to go. It could be amazing. I could be funny. I could be, I could be, you know, the best dancer in the room. I could be. Great. But I could also be on the floor in a ball of tears fighting a girl in the bathroom over the look that she gave me while washing my hands. Like you just never knew, Mm. (laughs) you know, it's like, you never know where it's going to take me. And that's what happened when I put alcohol in my body. I never knew what version of me was going to come out. And that's terrifying.
0: Yeah. And you know, and it's funny to hear, you know, somebody like yourself and, you know, in, and even I, where, you know, other people look and they go, Hey, you know, on the outward part you know you have it all together and you realize no we're all we're all just people and i think that there's there's so much power in that story and i i was that was really put to the forefront for me years ago i saw uh, a documentary called anonymous people and if Mm -hmm. those of the listeners if you've never seen that documentary i would i would suggest getting a copy of it because it talks about how People need. To, there's so many people that need to get well, and they cover some of the things that we we covered today. And that is that addiction is huge. It's it's a huge issue. It it is the number one health issue in my book in in this country. And we'll talk I more agree. about that. Uh, and I'm 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 going to do like a whole program on that. Um, it is it is it is the issue that nobody talks about. And part of it is because we have been trained to not talk about it. And people. So one of the the thesis of this documentary and honest people was that. You know, people that are in recovery that have some modicum of success in their life really need to openly talk about this so other people can see that you can get well and that this affects everyone. Because, you know, in in my career, I went to, you know, a certain height, you know, and you you come, and by the way, I can't underestimate when we talk about, you know, swimming and your family, we're talking very, very, very high level. And so... When this affects people like yourself, it it demonstrates that it it can affect anyone. It does, again, does not care who you are. But the important takeaway is that the only difference between, you know, us and some of the other people that are out there is that we finally decided to get well and did what was willing what what we needed to do to get well and i know in spending the last year uh, interning in a treatment facility if i mm-hmm. had one key what like if you were to sit and ask me hey mike what was the biggest takeaway from that whole experience and working in a treatment center you know cuz you know i by the way i interned at the same treatment center that i went through so i was there as a patient 10 mm-hmm. years later i'm i'm on the other side right and and now i'm watching the people and listening to people, and if I had one key takeaway, was that the people that uh, were not making it just were not opening up and listening, and and, and taking the solution. The solution is actually very very simple, but it's the mm-hmm. hard. It's h- simple and hard at the same time. Just well, being willing to do and accepting, just accepting that the disease that you have is what it is. It just it, and you ain't changing that. Just it is what it and, is.
1: Yeah. And don't it, try to figure it out, right? It's, it's a simple program for complicated people. Like Absolutely. I, I to,
0: don't overthink this damn thing. Just, yeah, just accept it. <laughs> right. Just accept it and, and roll with it because your life will get better. And I think that like you started off this program by saying you thought your life, when you gave up drinking, you thought your life was over. Mm-hmm. It, that's what I thought. Mm-hmm. But in reality, no, it opens up your, uh, what I heard it said once, um, you you can either give up everything to do one thing, or you can give up the one thing to be able to do everything.
1: Oh, I love that. Yeah, I love that. I heard that.
0: it once somewhere. I can't take credit for it. I, I heard it, it. See, those are the types of things that you hear at meetings. But um, Yeah,
1: exactly, and you pass it on. And that's like I went to Books a Million, right, in DuPont Circle when it was there, mm-hmm. and I, got, I went to the self-help, and I got every book I could on recovery because I wanted to understand it. I wanted to know why. I wanted to know. I just – nothing helped except walking into a meeting and talking to another person that's struggling, not working to another person that's sick and suffering, talking to another alcoholic, asking what they did, getting little tidbits like you got, you know, like for me, the the fact is, you know, when someone said that girl, the elevator's going down and you can get off at any time, it put the choice in my hands. It was Mm -hmm. up to me. There is not a single person that's going to do for me what I can do for myself when it comes to recovery.
0: That's right. That's right.
1: I can't, I wanted, I wanted a doctor to give me a pill. I wanted the doctor to say, what up something other than the fact that i had to do it myself and that's the hard part is that there's nobody else that's going to give you the peace of mind the joy or anything else you've got to work for it and the work is going to you know going to meetings working the steps talk. for me that's what worked for me you know and every and everybody's program is different and that's the thing it's a it's a program of suggestion mm-hmm. you do with it what you want
0: you yeah, know, there's. The, I, I. Yeah, that's something else I. I learned too in in this whole process in the in the edu, you know getting into the educational side of this is mm-hmm. that when you go to a meeting and, and correct me if I'm wrong on this and I I I, I just and I, and we can wrap up with this I I know with people that I sponsor that are new to the program and, and we would go to meetings mm-hmm. and I would mm-hmm. I would have I would, I give sort of like homework to sponsees. <laughs> Usually yeah. kind of a sponsor I, have. I want you to look at the room because I'm a people person, right? I want you to look at the room yeah. and listen to people. And I want you at the end of the meeting tell me who the new people are, who's like mid midway sobriety, and who's been around yeah. for a long time. And we're going to discuss this. And so they would do that, and afterwards, I'd say, well, you know, what do, what do you see? You know, who are the new people? And they and and usually they're pretty accurate. Okay, where's you know who are the old timers? Okay, and they're usually pretty accurate. And I, I would start explaining or asking them why do you, why is it that you you came to those conclusions? And the the moral of the story is that. Uh, The people that aren't making it, the people that keep relapsing, the people that keep coming into the meeting drunk, you know, because you have those people, they tend to do the same things. Okay, but over here on the other side of the room, the people that have been around and they've been sober for decades, what made you come to that conclusion? And my sponsor will say, because they do the same, they all do the same, tend to do the same things. And I said, so what's, you know, the takeaway to that is these people tend to do the same things. Those people tend to do the same things. You know, but you have Possibly. to you have to look at that and go. But what is it that I'm going to do? So, like you just said, recovery is individual to everyone. But there's a certain um, there's certain generalities that people do. Now, like your spirituality may look different than my spirituality, but what we have in common is we both have a form of spirituality.
1: Right. or because rarely have we meet. seen a person fail who will thoroughly follow our path.
0: Yeah, exactly. Those who
1: cannot are constitutionally incapable of being honest with themselves. See, I That's
0: knew. It. I knew you'd be able to quote the big book.
1: I knew it. That's it. It's only cuz I read how it worked at the meeting the other
0: night. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I mean, and, That's right. But no, but you, what, you know what that demonstrates to me though, Hillary, is that you uh when when you can start quoting the big book, it means that you're 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 in it you are in that and you're absorbing it and
1: um thank you I mean I I I was in a meeting I have to laugh
0: because there was a woman that I was in a meeting the other night and a woman quoted the big book and she said and that's on page such and such and the whole room went no that's 417 and she says ah not the third edition
1: (laughs) wow see I'm not there I I I mean (laughs) that's impressive
0: she goes it depends on which which edition you're looking at but uh, i've really enjoyed talking with you i really i really have we, we, we could we could go on for hours and we're gonna have to have Me you too. back
1: i know i would love that yeah I, I mean you know they say what's one thing you know someone's like what's one thing you could talk about for 15 minutes without researching or without doing anything. And it's, it's your story, right? It's my story. It's how I feel. And that's how we connect. It's not, I can't tell you how to do your program, but I can tell you my experience, strength and hope. And from that, if anybody gets something out of it, then that's all I can ask for because it's not a program of, of, you know, it's a program of suggestion. This -hmm. is what I did. This is what helped me. Maybe it'll help you, but if not, there's probably other people in this room that can share their experience, strength and hope. And I'm sure you'll get something from one of them. Something resonates.
0: But have a willingness. Have a willingness. Have and a willingness. I, and I, the only thing, I, w- I was a constant relapse. I know you haven't heard my entire story, but I was a constant relapser before I finally got sobriety. And it was because I just, I thought I knew the answer. Okay, well, okay, I get this, I get that, but forget that. that That's not going to work. And I just didn't have the the complete willingness. I hadn't surrendered to it yet, and that's what it comes mm-hmm. down to. But uh, we're so happy that you're here. Uh, you're sounding great, and uh, folks... This is how you do it. This is how you do it right here. And listen to Hillary's story. Take from that what you can because there's so many uh, pearls of wisdom in everything that that Hillary just said. And thank you for taking the time out. I, I know you have a, an incredibly busy day in life and uh, have you a young child. I mean, it's just, I know what that's like. You're, you're busy, but you took the time to to share, share your story with us and we really appreciate that.
1: Thank you. And thanks for having me. This is...
0: This is a great way to start my day. <laughs> there you go. Hey guys, so as I always like to say, uh, you know, I don't represent any group and Hillary doesn't either. E- even though we, we talked about groups here today, we don't represent those groups. No one does. I understand mm-hmm. that. We're just given our experience and, and what we do because uh, we don't represent anyone other than ourselves and our only purpose in giving this information is to share with you what we've done because it's helped us and maybe it will help you too. So if I've said anything or if Hillary said anything that doesn't apply to you or you don't agree with then just discard it. But try to take any information that you can use for yourself and to help others as well because that's what we do in recovery we help ourselves along the way uh as we try to impart the knowledge that we've gained to others as well and so with that again please visit our facebook page recovery Is possible and our website which is vanmeterwellnesssolutions.com and let me know how i'm doing and let me know if there's a topic that you're interested in hearing about because i'd love to hear from you hey hillary i didn't ask you do you have any social media that you'd like to throw out to the listeners if not that's okay but i didn't ask you that um
1: Yeah, I do. I mean, I'm on Twitter as at Hillary Phelps, H-I-L-A-R-Y-P-H-E-L-P-S, and um, same with Instagram. But there's just a a um, an underscore after Phelps, so it's Hillary Phelps underscore on Instagram. And if anybody wants has questions, wants help, suggestions, I'm I available. I mean, you know, I'm hit me up there. give you my you know my phone number my email we can chat i'm always willing to help another alcoholic who's sick and suffering or just who needs you know maybe of somebody in her life and and i'm i'm here for that
0: yeah so on instagram that was hillary phelps and then the underscores after the phelps is that correct
1: that's correct yes. okay
0: great uh well thank you so much for that and thanks for coming on the show
1: thanks for having me yeah. i look forward to talking again soon
0: yeah everybody you take care enjoy talking with you And we will see you next time. Appreciate you joining us. Take care of yourselves.